that resonate with the heart of James. Uh, James is the half-brother of our Lord. He's the half-brother because they don't share the same father. Uh, the father of the Lord Jesus Christ is the Holy Spirit who conceived miraculously uh, with Mary, the Lord Jesus himself. And yet they shared the uh, same mother. They grew up in the same house. James and Jesus didn't quite jive, if you will. James really was probably like the rest of his family who wondered about Jesus, wondering if he had lost his mind. Remember, they went trailing after him one time, believing that to be the case, wanting to bring him back home. And Jesus then turned that attention to those who were around him and basically said, um, who is my mother? Who is my brother? Who is my sister but the one who does the will of the Father? And he was saying that to them who is seated there with him listening to his instruction. But yet James was probably around when, James, uh, when Jesus was teaching some of the great messages that he taught, including the Sermon on the Mount, because a lot of the writings that James has in his book, this epistle that we're reading from these days, resonates so easily with the teachings of the Lord. And there's an obvious love for the Old Testament wisdom section as well. Much of his writing seems to reflect back on the Proverbs and the wisdom sections of, of that part of Scripture. So we're enjoying the teachings that James is giving to us. Not only is he reminding us of great truths that Christ has shared and great truths of the Old Testament by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but he's challenging us individually to be authentic in our faith. And he's giving us a series of tests throughout his epistle that are faith tests, if you will, genuine tests. Uh, is this evident in your life? Because he's wanting to point out just because you say you are a follower of Christ doesn't mean that you are just because you call yourself a Christian doesn't mean that you are so he's he's helping us to discover those genuine uh, tests throughout his scripture so we're in chapter three as we're just working verse by verse through this epistle and today we're talking about the test of the tongue and I think what he would settle into is if your heart is surrendered then your tongue is submitted and I think that's a good direction for us I'll give you a little forewarning this one's going to have a little bit of a barb to it because we all struggle with our tongue we all struggle with words that we say and and uh, James is going to call us out and just remind us of some significant truths I'm going to try to share those summary statements early as I'm reading the text I'm going to break it down we're going 12 verses but I'm going to break it down and just give you a direction where I think James is going and we'll reflect on those truths let's ask the Lord to give us discernment and direction so Lord we thank you first for your word we thank you for the truth it's eternal always has been and always will be and it speaks powerfully to today it is authoritative. It is the way in which we ought to live out our lives. So we ask for your help to understand it and by your grace to walk in it. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who reminds us of all the things that you have instructed to us. Now with attentive spirit and heart and ears, we say speak to us, O Lord, that we might obey and respond to you in faith. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, here's the first direction that he's going in. We are all accountable to God for our words. 
no doubt everyone is going to address before the Lord every idle word spoken. Everything done in this body is going to be accountable to the Lord Jesus. All things are created by him, for him, for his glory. So the master is going to ask of us of all things that have been done. And we're going to give an account to that, an accounting to God. But now notice what James is saying. God is more strictly going to judge those of us who are teachers, those who are teachers of God's word. And here's the way he says that. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with stricter, greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. Before I give the warning, I'll just lift up for a moment our teachers and those people who have had significant impact on our lives uh, one particular person stands out to me. Her name is Mrs. Gibbs. She was my fifth grade Sunday school teacher. And how in the world this uh, soon-to-be widow when she was teaching us, how in the world she could handle all of us in the fifth grade, I don't know. But she did it masterfully. She was a great teacher. And not only did she teach us the word and God's truth, but she taught it to us with love, which made us really want to listen and to engage in this word that she was teaching. But she wasn't the only one that had great impact on our lives, Kay and mine, when we were growing up, you know, Kay and I grew up together. It took me a little while in a, about a four-year window to convince her that her boyfriend was a jerk and she didn't need to be with him. <laughs> but prior to, prior to that and after that, we were together and always been together and always will till death do us part. Uh, but we grew up together. We grew up in the same home church. Uh, for her, she moved, what, sixth grade or so where, where we had moved a few years prior. But anyway, we, our families were very good friends. And so we had people that were investing in us commonly. Uh, we had a couple of pastors that really were students of God's word. And they invested their lives into God's word and teaching God's word and really living out God's word. They really did a great job. I still look up to them and I reflect back on those days with gratitude that God had treasured those kind of people into our lives. We had a student pastor, particularly in our high school years, that just really poured into us, he and his wife both. And they loved us, they loved the Word of God, and they wanted us to be discipled in the Word of God. And they would teach us lessons, not just with words, but with song as well. In fact, Kay and I know a number of scriptures that were put to song. That's a great way to memorize scripture. I, I don't know why we have pulled back on a lot of that, but the scripture doesn't pull back on that. In fact, God gives us a whole book in the Bible called Songs so that he would help us to understand this is a great way to learn and know and to reflect on and meditate on his word. Those kind of people invested in us, but probably no one more than my fifth grade Sunday school teacher. She was investing in my life, and she was identifying God's investment in me of his treasure and talent and skill and ability and his gifts. In fact, she gave me the first opportunity to teach a Bible lesson to people, my peers. So I'm really challenged by that. It just reminds me that those who are called and gifted by God to teach his word, they really have an honorable position, and you should want that. In fact, the Bible says that if you have a desire to be a pastor, it is a good thing. So there's no question that James understands that, that people who teach God's word, elevate God's word, they have remarkable impact on our lives. In fact, just as a summary statement, this word comes on the screen. That uh, Give me that next slide there. Teachers have the opportunity to have a remarkable impact on people. 
If you're a teacher, whether you're in our youngest classes here or you're in our senior adult classes, you have impact on people. And I'm grateful for that. Our people are better off because of you. In fact, whether you're on staff or you're among the laity, if you're investing God's word in people and discipling them in those ways, you are making an impact. And that's a good thing. But James wants us to know that impact is significant, but you ought to recognize there's a warning that comes with that calling, and that is you have a stricter judgment to come. That God requires much of you. To whom much is given, much is required. So he says in verse 1 and 2, not many of you should become teachers because you know those who teach are going to be judged with greater strictness. So we teach with some fear, certainly a reverence, knowing that God is going to hold us to a higher level of accountability in our words and in our lives that we live. So if you have been given the gift of teaching, teach. If you have the skill to teach, teach. God was very purposeful to give that to you. If you can sing, sing. If God has given you the ability to make money, give. If you have hospitality as a gift, be hospitable. Be generous in that way. In all the ways that he's entrusted treasure into your life with gifts, talents, and abilities, use them. And teaching is one of those, but James says, but you ought to be forewarned there is a greater strictness that you have put yourself at an elevated position in teaching God's word, and God will hold you at that position. Now, what is this greater strictness? It comes in two ways. For those who feign Christianity, they're acting as Christians, but they're not really Christians. Their heart is not surrendered to God. They, they know words, they know expressions, they know the acts, they kind of go through the motions, and they might even want the teaching position because of the authority that it gives to them and yet they are fake. To them, there is a greater judgment to come. It's called the great white throne judgment. It's among all those who are unbelievers are going to stand before God and have to bear an account of all those sins that have been done throughout their life, and they will be eternally separated from God in a very literal place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, where agony is never quenched, a place called hell. That's a greater judgment to those who teach God's word who are not part of God. They're not surrendered to him. The second is different than that. The second is called the Bema seat judgment. Bema means elevated. Christ Jesus is elevated in this position where you and I will come before him. Individually, we will come before him and give an account of everything that is done in this body and what he's doing. He's burning away all those things that are not eternal in value, and he is lifting up to reward those things that are eternal in value, those things that are true, right, noble, and good with right heart intention that are done. And to those people, they are rewarded. To teachers, he says, when you stand before me in the Bema seat, judgment, then there will be a stricter judgment in that day the fire will be intensified those things that are just wood hay and stubble are burned away god requires much of us as teachers so james is certainly not discouraging christians from being teachers he is actually warning those who have the gift of teach teach well because you're going to have an accountability day coming Paul said the same thing to Timothy, the young pastor who's pastoring over in Ephesus. He says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. 
This is the Bema Seat. This is God's working in us. This is the spirit of truth that is dwelling within us now, that is constantly reminding us of our lives, our words, our attitudes, our actions. Present yourself to God as one being approved, one who is approved. And look what he says, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, rightly handling the word of truth. For those of you who are carpenters, you understand what that last phrase is, measure twice, cut once, right? It's making sure you get it right before you communicate it. Uh, I'm not the best order by far, but I can tell you I'm well prepared in God's word when I stand on the platform to teach you. I love you enough to do that, and I'm fearful of God enough to make sure that I'm well prepared when I stand up. With all confidence, I can say, thus saith the Lord, all confidence I can say this is what God's word says now I might not be right in it at all times but I'm confident that my study and my engagement with the spirit in prayer has led me to what I believe to be the right way so let me just summarize this because this could be a standalone message as its own and uh, I'm not doing that today so I want to just summarize that first part that's so important and here's some summary points truth must genuinely indwell us to be rightly lived out of us and to be rightly communicated by us now this is a reoccurring theme for james if you remember going back to chapter one he says a couple of things number one he says that god saves us by the implanting word he implants his word in us his word is transforming us his word is saving us and he says that word richly indwells us so if you're going to be a truth bearer, if you're going to be one to teach God's word, that comes first by it indwelling you. And if you're going to live rightly, it will be because the word of God is in you. It's been deposited in you and it has a dividend. It has an interest bearing. It has a growth in your life and in your word. Secondly, teachers purpose to live and speak reverently before God and before other people. Now, I recognize that we're not all very good at this. In fact, James knew this as well. So he's saying, live reverently before God, speak reverently before God and for other people. And then he says in verse 2, but we all stumble in many ways. So I wish that weren't the case. I wish I could stand before you and tell you that I don't stumble in my words. But I'm like James. I stumble in the words that I share sometimes. They come out sharper than I wanted them to come out. Sometimes I wanted them to come out sharp. Sometimes they're hurtful and not building up. Sometimes they tear down rather than restore and encourage people. I don't like that part about me. And if you're being honest, you would say, hey, I've got some of that in my life too. Because you agree with James, we all stumble in many ways. We all need the sanctifying, cleansing, purifying work of the Holy Spirit. Anybody not need that? Yeah, I need the Spirit's work in me, and so do you. Um, if you're with a mask, I'm not going to be able to understand you very well. But if you're not with masks, let me just see your lips move every now and then. That's right, Pastor. I'm with you on that. That helps me. Our words allow us the opportunity to build people up or to tear people down. And the teacher's purpose is meant to build people up. And James certainly understands that. That's why he's writing this great epistle. It's, a, it's an epistle that is uh, sharp. It's one that causes us to ask significant questions, but it's meant to build us up in Christ. And then teachers recognize their responsibilities of living out their calling while being mindful that they must be accountable to God, that Christ Jesus, 
we'll, they will stand before him one day and be accountable. So that's sort of summary. But let's get in the rest of the text because that's where I wanted to hang out a good bit today. James says that our tongues are revealing a battle for our hearts. So you might say, this is, this is a message all about my mouth, my speaking, what the words that I share. But really, this is going to be a message about your heart. Because what Jesus said is out of the overflow of the heart, you say it. The mouth speaks. So this is really about our heart. We're recognizing that when we have a battle for the tongue, the words we say, the cussing. Excuse my French. Did the French cuss a lot or something? Why do we say that? Pardon my French. The lying, the cheating, the bickering, the gossiping, the backbiting, all that. You say, well, that, that's a struggle with my tongue. And what James is saying is that's a struggle for your heart. And the mouth is just an indicator of what's going on in the heart. Same words that Jesus shared with us as well. James 2 says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. Uh, I'm sorry, I jumped ahead of you. Uh, of, no, that's it. He's a perfect man, also able to bridle his whole body. Now, you might say, well, what's this perfect man? What does that mean? Well, it's not meaning that, oh, you finally have accomplished perfection. It's not what he's saying. Back in chapter 1, remember what James is saying. Here's the purpose of trials. Trials produce in us steadfastness. And steadfastness, when it has its full effect, brings to us what? Completion and perfection so that you and I might have no wanting. Now, he's not saying that trials are going to work in you so that you are sinless, that you'll never sin. That would be against what 1 John says. 1 John says, if you say you don't sin, you're a liar. So he's not saying that, but what he's saying is there is a maturing that comes as we are walking with Christ, as we're given to Christ, and he will use trials to sort of niche away at all those things. All right, we have gone through how many trials in 2020 so far? And every trial reveals in us issues, doesn't it? Anybody ever just wake up ticked off? Anybody like that? Anybody saying things, venting in ways to people that you walk away saying, okay, that was way over the top. I don't know where all that came from. Anybody else having those moments? Anybody filled with fear and worry these days when the Lord specifically says to you, fear doesn't come from me? Anybody struggling with that? All right, so trials are brought about and useful by God in our life to chop away at those things. How are they chopped away? Lord, why did I just say that? Why did I just do that? That is not of you. Oh, God, help me to be quick to listen and slow to speak. God, this fear is not of you. That means the enemy is having his way with me. God, I'm confident that you sit sovereignly on a throne and every day of my life was written before one of them came about. I stand back in that truth. Chop away at that fear in my life. The trials are meant to bring us to completion and perfection. This word is to be complete. When Jesus is on the cross, it's the same word that he used when he said, it's done, it's completed, it's finished. So 
if you don't stumble in what you're saying, it's because you are being made more mature, more perfected in the way of Christ. Now, the one who can bridle his tongue, that person can control his whole body. In other words, the one is maturing in their faith, learning to practice the bridling of their tongue, guarding what is being expressed. That person can control their body. It reminds me of words that we used to sing, and even to our boys, be careful, little mouth, what you say. Be careful, little mouth, what you say. Why? For the Father of above is looking down with love. That's the accountability, right? Oh, be careful, little mouth, what you say. So all those things that we mentioned earlier, lying, gossiping, exaggerating, cheating, lustful intention, flirting, all that stuff. If you can control that, you can control your whole body. Because that's only controlled when your heart is fully submitted. When your heart is fully submitted, then the Spirit of God takes control because you say, Christ, you are Lord. Sit on the throne of my heart and rule my heart. And as you rule my heart, let me be careful what I say. Let me be careful what I see. Let me be careful what I do because Christ is ruling in us. So bridle the tongue and you'll have control of your whole body. You see where this is going? James gives a couple of illustrations that I think are pretty visual for us. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So a horse is a perfect animal to use as an illustration for the power of the tongue. I don't know that you can get a whole lot more powerful, more powerful than a horse. It's a thousand pounds, half a ton of muscle. And they are incredible in their strength. Almost from birth, almost immediately they begin to walk and they can run even right after their birth. And man, can they ever run. They can run three times faster than any of us. Probably ten times faster than some of us. And they're powerful. They can, they can lift and pull and push 15 to 25 times more than any of us. It's amazing the power that they have. I grew up with horses. Had a small little farm, and we had some horses, and we would go riding. Now, I know you think I'm skinny now, but, man, you should have seen me when I was a kid. I was a small, skinny kid, 100 pounds or so. And we would saddle up the horse one or two of them. One was a big old walker. I bet he was three quarters of a ton. He was huge. We would saddle up that old horse and get on it. And this 100-pound kid, by placing the bridle on him, which was connected to a bit, connected to reins, this 100-pound kid, with that thing on its tongue, could maneuver that massive animal anywhere I wanted him to go. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? And James is saying, if you can bridle your tongue, you can maneuver your entire being anywhere you want it to go. Same way with the ship. 
You can have the most petite woman get at the helm of a ship, and she's steering this huge vessel. As James says, it's driven and blown by strong winds, but yet she can move that ship by merely a small rudder moving that rudder around. In comparison to the size of the ship, in comparison to the forces against it, it's easily maneuvered where she wants it to go by the movement of that rudder. Now, that's pretty important for us to understand what he's saying about a boat or a horse. What he's saying is, if you can bridle your speech, if you can bridle your tongue, then you can maneuver everything. Like a horse bit or a ship rudder, one who controls his tongue can control the whole body. But you know, it's not just about the power of control, is it? It's not about me just having control of the horse. Or it's not about you just aimlessly sailing a ship. The person, the equestrian or the captain of the ship has a purpose. The ship's captain has a charter, right? She knows where the destination is and she is steering with the rudder to get to the destination. And the equestrian knows where he wants the horse to go. He has purpose and intentionality. I want to go down that trail. I want to go to that neighbor's house or I want to go to that pasture or I want to ride around the fence. Whatever it is, there's purposefulness to holding the reins and there's purposefulness to steer with the rudder. And so it is with your mouth. It's not just about guarding your mouth. It's about directing your life. And what James is saying, this is not just a reflection of, but this is a building into and your mouth, your tongue, can do both. Controlling our tongues is controlling our lives. And if you thought that your words don't matter, James is saying you ought to rethink that. A little lie here, a little cussing there, and a little venting of anger here, and a little gossiping there has significant impact on your lives. I was reading a commentary last week from Mortier, and he says this, if, if our tongue... We're so well under control that it refused to formulate the words of self-pity, the images of lustfulness, the thoughts of anger and resentment. Then these things are cut down before they have a chance to live. The master switch has, been depri has deprived them of any power to switch on that side of our lives. Now look at this. The control of the tongue is more than evidence of spiritual maturity. It is the means to it. So this is not about you and me maturing and that being evident in our mouth. It's not only about that. It's using our mouth with intentionality to direct us to maturity. It's choosing not to say certain things and choosing to say certain things because you want to build up in you the fullness of Christ by His Word, by His, His guidance, by His Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, and by the Word of God that has been given to us. Now, tongues, comparatively small, are absolutely powerful, aren't they? But our tongues are small, but they often talk big. And James just brings that up. James says, so also the tongue is small, a small member of the body, like the bit is to the horse or the rudder is to the ship. The tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. This is one of my favorite words in this passage. It's a compound word in the original language, and if I were going to literally translate it, it would be mega talk. Just mega words. 
And what James is saying, though it is small, it oftentimes talks way too big. It uses mega words. What is he meaning by that? Well, it could be a, a number of different ways that we might talk big. Though disproportionately small, this mega talk could be, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that. It's self-centered, it's self-directed, it's self-initiated without the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Lord gave us some warning about that. He said, come now you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. We'll do business that way. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist. Man, as I get older, that, that statement has more and more clarity. Uh, and Kay is older than me. It really is clear to her. <laughs> uh, I'm at that point where I'm still in my young 50s and she's in her mid-50s. She's turned double nickel and I do this month as well. She's six months older than I am. Anyway, you are a mist, and that appears for a little time, and then it vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, now catch this, your big words, your mega words, your boast is arrogance, and that kind of talk is evil. See, words matter, don't they? Words direct your life. Words take you on a destination. And what James is saying, you better let the work of the Holy Spirit be like a bit in the mouth of a horse or a rudder on a big ship. And no matter what is pushing and driving against you, you better let the Holy Spirit steer your life. Otherwise, you have big words filled with arrogance, and that kind of boasting is evil. So, Lord, do your work in my heart, do your work in my life, that it might be evident that you're in control of my words. I'm going to use words well, and I'm going to use them wisely, and they're going to build other people up, and they're going to build me up as well. Now, let me move a little forward in this passage, beginning in the latter part of verse 5, because our tongues not only reveal our heart, they actually can corrupt them. So it can go both ways. You're, you're picking up on that by now, that... It's not just an expression of your heart, but it can build up your heart, or in this case, it can corrupt the heart. And here's what he says. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. When I come to this passage, I can't help but go back when I was a kid, young kid, I was in the woods with some boys. Now that always, that always is a problem. When you got a group of boys in the woods and there's a little fire going, that typically can be some trouble because with that little fire going in the midst of the pine thicket was a pack of cigarettes and they were smoking and i was um hmm smoking uh i did not inhale <laughs> and i walked away at the point that the fire got away and now it's burning through pine straw now, for the first few minutes, it's like stomp a fire, right? I mean, now we're all smoking and we're all stomping around the fire and we're beating the fire. And I'm just going to tell you, the fire got bigger. And when the fire got so big that I got so fast and ran all the way home and jumped into a pickup football game that was going on in the backyard about 10, 10 minutes or so later, 
as the fire engine is coming I say oh guys look there's fire over there <laughs> I never told my parents but for the I don't know for the next umpteen months I was thinking constantly the cops or the fire chief is going to call and they are going to rat me out somebody is going to let me know so every time the phone would ring my heart would leap into my throat because I knew this was the day of reckoning I know this to be true. A small fire can turn into a big blaze very quick. Right? So everybody knows that. You've, you've let one get away from you before, I'm sure. Now, in the like way, the tongue is a fire. Listen to all these descriptions that God gives about our tongue. It's a fire. It's a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Go to that next one. I'll finish out this section. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile of the sea can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. I mean, can you be more direct than that? Well, let me just make sure you got them all. Look at this next screen, and it'll just give you a summary. Here's the way God describes your mouth and my mouth. It is a world of unrighteousness, staining the whole body, setting afire the entire course of life. It's set on fire by hell. It's restless evil. It's full of deadly poison and untamable by any one of us. And that's about as clear as you get. And you don't have to be convinced of that. You know that your mouth is like that. Which brings us to where James is drawing this thing to an end, at least in this section. We desperately need somebody to change us so that our tongue can actually be tamed. And that brings up this final point. Jesus can transform our hearts, direct our lives, and empower us to control our tongues. Jesus is the answer to this. He says, with it, with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Now, time out. I'm not going to hang at this point very long because we've been talking to this because this is a reoccurring theme for James as well. And if you've been with us throughout the last couple of chapters, you know this to be true. In the culture in which we live right now, there is a push for you to make a clear decision on who you're going to be for and who you are going to be against. And you and I don't have that privilege there's a push for you to not like people who are of different race than you, different color than you, different geographical area than you, different from you, socially, economically, educationally. And here's what James says. Your tongue is so full of evil that you'll curse people who are made in the image of God. Black white north south educated uneducated rich poor agree don't agree everyone 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 is made in the image of god and we have no opportunity in christ jesus to curse some and bless others and that's specifically where we will go without the redeeming work of christ without the the great holy working of the Spirit of God in us, this is where we are going. It will be evident that your heart is changed and is changing by what you are saying these days about people. 
You say, well, preacher, I don't agree with them. I don't like them. They stand for everything against what I stand for. I'm telling you, your heart will be revealed by the words you say about people. All right, there's a whole lot of people that I don't necessarily like. There's a whole lot of people that I don't like what they do. And there's a whole lot of people that I disagree with, but I can come down to this truth. They are made in the image of God, and I have no obligation except to say, blessed be you, for God has made you in his image. I disagree with you. I think you're absolutely wrong. I think you're moving in the wrong direction, but blessed be you, for God has chosen to make you in his image. So from the same mouth come blessings and curses. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Now look at the last part of this section. Does a spring, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield forth fresh water. And what he's saying there is that God wants to bring transformation. God wants to take that bitter water in your heart and he wants to make it all together new he wants to make it fresh and he wants to take what was once thorny and filled with thistles and all kinds of weeds and he wants to uproot that in your life and he wants to plant in in you what is productive and what is meaningful and significant yielding forth fruit from the spirit of god so we need a transformation of hearts so that the Spirit of God will direct our lives and empower us to control our tongues. Are you okay with that? You with me on that? This is what God wants of us today. And you might say, well, man, are we being inundated with all this pressure? This is the opportunity for us to shine the brightest in the midst of darkness, just to let God and His great Word be a blessing in us and to other people. I can't help but think about Isaiah the prophet who is making great declarations of doom to the kingdom of Judah. And if you're a historian, biblical historian, you know that this is a period in time where Judah, among the two, two kingdoms, the split kingdoms, Judah was the last to forsake the Lord. And Isaiah was the prophet who spent five chapters declaring six doom statements to Judah. And what he was saying to them is, you have forsaken the Lord, you have turned from him, and you have worshipped someone other than him. And he is going to bring area nations like a scourge against you, and he will bring a cataclysmic event of war into the kingdom. And he will remove you from the land as he forewarned you. And so through five chapters, he makes six strong statements about what would be happening. In fact, in verse 26 of chapter 5, he says, God will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them to come from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly and speedily they will come. It's as a sheep herder might whistle for his dogs to come. And the dogs come at the command of the sheep herder. And he does every, they do everything that the herdsman wants them to do. So God will use nations to come against Judah in that way. And those nations will war and rage against Judah. Verse 27 says, None is weary. Talking about those soldiers who are coming against them. None stumble, none slumbers, sleeps. The waistband isn't loose, the sandal strap, it's not broken. Their arrows are sharp, all their bows are bent from their horses, their hooves are like flint. 
and their wheels are like a whirlwind. He goes on to describe it's like a roaring lion looking for his prey. They're coming against you. And so with all these woe statements, he just builds on them one after another after number. Number six comes at the end of chapter five. But then you turn to chapter six and you have the seventh statement. It's a woe statement as well. But it's radically different. Isaiah is unlike few people. He's standing in heaven. And he's seeing the holiness of God and the glory of God and his glorious train is filling the entirety of that place. And there God has beings that have been created purposefully in the presence of the Lord they will serve. And yet in their service, they hide their eyes, not able to see the glory of God and the holiness of God. And Hall must echo with their words of God's holiness, his holiness, his holiness. And then comes the seventh woe statement. Isaiah, recognizing all of God's holiness and glory, says, woe is me. Woe is me. I'm undone. I'm breaking apart is what he's feeling. He's just utterly going to collapse. And you know why? For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the glory of God. Isn't that amazing? In the midst of holiness the preacher isaiah says woe is me for my mouth is filthy you and i have this way about us to be flippant about our words maybe isaiah was like that i don't know you and i think oh no big deal What's a little jab here and there? What's a little venting of anger there? What's a little cussing there? What's a little bit of racial tone? What's the big deal? But when you stand before God in His holiness, it suddenly is the big deal. And Isaiah understood that. He came to that conclusion. It was the first thing out of his mouth. Woe is me. I'm undone. My mouth, my mouth is unclean. What James is wanting us to do is to pause enough to say, check your mouth. It'll reveal a whole lot about you. Listen to your words. It reveals your heart. And he's saying, use your words, your tongue, to speak into your heart so that you might be mature. A perfect woman, a perfect man, maturing in Christ. Oh, Lord, cleanse us, I pray. Cleanse our mouth. Make us holy. Cleanse us, Lord, and we will be clean. Take our sin from us in Christ's name that they might be removed and then commission us that we may go with words that are far different. And I pray it would bring glory to Jesus who makes it possible. In his name I pray, amen.